Coming up, a new drop of Twitter files, and it's a massive vindication for former President Trump. I'll explore the wider Twitter effect on other platforms. Lawyer and Kentucky gubernatorial candidate Eric Dieters joins me. We're going to talk about a medical malpractice case that will blow your mind. Deep layers of corruption in our medical and judicial system and how China corrupts our children while protecting their own. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. What's the uh, biggest story in the country right now? Well, I would say it's the Twitter files. Not that there aren't other important stories. There is the economy. There is the border. But in terms of these revelations coming out almost in successive waves, and I want to focus on the latest one, which uh, journalist Barry Weiss calls Twitter Files Part 5. This is getting, again, very little, if any, mainstream media coverage. They're embarrassed. They This is their strategy. It was their strategy with 2,000 mules. Let's try to ignore it. Let's hope it kind of all goes away. If it doesn't go away, we'll have to wade in and start uh, attacking Elon Musk. And some of that is starting to happen. But by and large, uh, nothing on NBC, nothing on CBS, nothing on ABC, virtually nothing in the rest of the mainstream media. Now, this, I think, makes it even more obligatory for podcasts like mine to relay what we're actually finding out. And that's really what I want to do in the next couple of segments. So the focus here is on the the banning of Trump from Twitter and how that came about. It came about uh, right around January 6th, and we're going to look at it blow by blow. So the first part of what happens is that uh, is that Trump right after January 6th, tweets out, the 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first, and make America great again will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. Wow, whoop-dee-doo. And then Trump goes on to say in a second tweet that he's not going to go to the inauguration. Now, interestingly, there is a movement gathering at Twitter um, of Twitter employees demanding that they ban Trump. And um, one Twitter employee says there's a lot of employee advocacy happening. And um, the Washington Post in the early afternoon of January 8th publishes a letter signed by 300 Twitter employees to Jack Dorsey demanding that Trump be banned. We must examine Twitter's complicity in what President-elect Biden has rightly termed uh, insurrection. So Twitter now begins to look at Trump's tweets and they conclude... He's not violating their rules in any way. Quote, I am not seeing clear or coded incitement in the DJD. Donald J. Trump tweet wrote, writes Anika Navaroli, a Twitter policy official. I'll respond to the elections channel and say that our team has assessed and found no bios, bios of violations for the DJT one. Um, and then uh, she continues. As an FYI, safety, this is Twitter, safety, has assessed the DJT tweet above and determined that there is no violation of our policies at this time. And then the Twitter safety team puts out a statement. It is a clear no viol, no violation. It's just to say he's not attending the inauguration. Exactly. And yet, at this point, Vijay Agade, uh, Twitter's chief legal uh, policy officer, weighs in. Uh, this is just about 90 minutes after they decided no violations. And she basically asked whether, quote, um, 
She asked whether it could be, quote, coded incitement to further violence. In other words, this is the good old dog whistle argument. Is Trump speaking in a coded language uh, to his supporters? So what he says is on the face of it benign, but there's some underlying message. And this, of course, causes Twitter to jump, in a sense, to attention. Quote, a few minutes later, Twitter employees on the scaled enforcement team said, in fact, that Trump's tweet may have violated the glorification of violence policy. How? Well, essentially by taking Trump's benign phrase, American patriots, and substituting rioters. So this is Twitter projecting onto Trump. It's not anything Trump says. They're putting, in a sense, words in his mouth by saying he says, he says patriots, he means rioters. Uh, and, and then from there, essentially, you know, you may say all hell breaks loose. Uh, things escalate, says Barry Weiss. Members of the team come to view Trump as, quote, the leader of a terrorist group responsible for violence and deaths comparable to Christchurch shooter or Hitler. And on that basis and on the totality of his tweets, he should be deplatformed. Then there's an emergency kind of meeting. Um, uh, Jack Dorsey is there. Vijay Agade is there. Uh, and basically all this overheated rhetoric about the banality of evil, Yol Roth, the little twerp who, you know, is now apparently in hiding uh, because, of course, all his all his misdeeds have been exposed. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the people around Ceausescu once the, once the kind of there was an expose of all the stuff that had been going on in communist Romania. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they had to move out of their houses, uh, too. Now, um, Dorsey, I think, here gives in and, and decides, okay, we're going to ban Trump. He's, he, he now wants to make sure the language is worded right. But I think with Dorsey here, you're dealing with a spineless guy. I mean, a guy, maybe he has, as, as um, Elon Musk says, a good heart. I don't know. I wouldn't jump to that conclusion personally myself. Uh, but so either he's corrupt or he's an invertebrate. Uh, or as sometimes happens to be the case, he's both. But in any event, he goes along with this. Uh, and then says Barry Weiss, there's ecstasy at Twitter. They're thrilled that Trump is banned. It's like a massive ideological hit. And so let's draw the conclusion here. And Elon Musk has not hesitated to do this. By and large, Trump violated no Twitter policy. And yet here he is, a sitting president that was banned really by the collective actions of about four people. And who are these four people? These are four people, a 35-year-old Yoel Roth, this um, uh, Asian Indian woman, Vijay Agade, Jack Dorsey. Yeah, like four guys who are like in their 30s and 40s sitting around going, yeah, let's ban the president of the United States. Let's cut him off from his ability to communicate with his own followers. This is really what went down. Debbie and I were talking about these uh, Twitter files revelations. And, you know, Debbie was like, so what? Like, what's going to actually happen? Because time and time again, we have revelations, the expose of Russia collusion, for example. What really happened to all those people? The expose of all the 51 intelligence officials who lied about Hunter Biden. Oh, yeah, that story is not a real story. It's Russian disinformation. No, it's a real story. Well, what's going to happen to those guys? Well, at the very least, those guys need to be hauled up before the Republican Congress, uh, embarrassed, publicly exposed, and, and a petition made for their, for their security clearances to be taken away. These people are actually um, ideological frauds, uh, and they are masquerading behind medals, and they're, they're hiding behind titles. But these titles are meaningless because with the titles would normally go credibility or trust. These were people clearly willing to lie. Now, um, 
let's come back to the impact of all this in a broader sense. Like, is there going to be any impact, for example, on Facebook, on Meta? I mean, the censorship regime there is intact. The censorship regime at YouTube is intact. Um, look at what Google is doing behind closed doors. I mean, with Google, it's probably the worst of all. Why? Because it's invisible. I mean, think about it. When people do a Google search, they kind of think like they're going to a dictionary. I want to look up the meaning of this word. And of course, they think they're just going to go straight to the word. But they don't realize that there's a whole system of orchestration in terms uh, of what word, what information, what links are put in front of you. And Google, there's no reason to believe that Google has people in there who are any different than Vijaya Gade or Yol Roth. It's the same type of person. It's the same scumbag uh, that is organizing and controlling. So America's political debate, and to some degree, the global debate, regulated by a small group of petty tyrants. And there are kind of two possibilities. These Twitter revelations are eye-opening. They kind of show you, Twitter's showing you what a largely free speech platform now feels like. It's not entirely free speech. In fact, Heather Mullins, who just posted something on 2000 Mules, uh, was put into a suspension, a temporary suspension, but uh, the same silly warnings, you know, election experts have determined, blah, blah, blah. And then she was released from it. Uh, and then I retweeted her on something. And again, she now messaged me this morning. I'm in another 12 hour. I mean, so Elon Musk has got to realize there are a lot of termites that are still in a Twitter. And so the fumigation is far from complete. There's a lot more work to be done. Yes, you got rid of James Baker, the FBI guy, but there are other FBI guys in there that were hired from the deep state by Twitter. You just need to go in with a broom, Elon Musk, and wipe them all out. Um, now, Let's remember that when Twitter banned Trump, and this is a point made by Barry Weiss in Twitter Files number five, there are all kinds of other leaders from, in fact, many times uh, despotic countries that call for violence, urge violence, incite people to violence. Think of like the Ayatollah Khomeini. Think about the former Malaysian prime minister who said it was a, quote, right of Muslims to kill millions of French people. Now, Twitter deleted his quote, uh, but he remains on the platform to this day. Uh, and so um, Barry Weiss's point is that Trump was being singled out. Trump's actual statements were benign, but they interpreted them as, oh, this is an incitement to violence, and yet there are other leaders inciting violence. And then Barry Weiss reminds us, now this is something we already knew, that there are a lot of people around the world, a lot of leaders from Angela Merkel in Germany to Macron uh, in France uh, to even Mexico's president, um, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, who criticized the banning of Trump because I think they recognize that this is a fundamental free speech issue. And if you can take this kind of arbitrary and really without uh, genuine pretext action against the head of state, who everybody is vulnerable. If you can do it to the, the sitting president, uh, you essentially have virtually unlimited censorship power. And so you've got Macron, and these are not exactly right-wingers. Now, Merkel is slightly right of center, but Obrador is a socialist and Macron is to the left. And yet you had this almost, you could say, global clamor against what these social media platforms have, are done. Um, look, Elon Musk deserves a lot of credit. He is detoxifying something that has been suppressed and hidden. 
uh, very bad stuff that's been going on beyond behind closed doors. Um, it's only the beginning of the um, glasnost or perestroika, if you want to call it, the kind of opening that we need. Uh, and Musk himself made the point that no national kind of healing or reconciliation or going forward is possible without a full accounting of the truth. And so what I'm now waiting for is Twitter files number six, subject COVID. This episode is focusing a good deal on um, social media. And I've been talking about uh, Twitter and also the impact of the lifting of Twitter censorship or the, the, the large lifting of Twitter censorship on other platforms. I now want to talk specifically about TikTok. Now, I, I'm not on TikTok. Uh, I asked Debbie the other day, should I get on TikTok? And she goes, you're too old to be on TikTok. <laughs> so I don't believe I'll be starting a TikTok account. Uh, nevertheless, TikTok is huge. I mean, I saw, I think this morning, that Taylor Swift has something like 25 million TikTok followers. And so, um, and a lot of young people are on TikTok uh, all over the world. Now, there's been a lot of talk in America about how TikTok is a Chinese operation to collect your data, to find out all kinds of things about you, almost like a surveillance or spying operation masquerading as a social media platform. And so there are states that have now begun the process of banning state involvement with uh, TikTok. Uh, I know that the FBI has given some warnings in congressional and Senate testimony into the effect of we're concerned about TikTok and the ability of the Chinese government to exploit uh, TikTok. But I want to focus on something a little different that caught my eye, namely the Chinese TikTok, which, by the way, has a different name. It's not called uh, TikTok, uh, but it is the Chinese version of TikTok. It's completely different than Western or American TikTok. Western or American TikTok is uh, unbelievably sort of laissez-faire. You have all kinds of people talking about their tattoos. All kinds of depravity is discussed on, on TikTok. Uh, by and large, there is a... Um, there is a uh, the search results are manipulated by and large to feed uh, people's desire for novelty, for sort of moral and sexual experimentation, uh, kind of anything goes. And you might think, well, if this is what uh, you know, if this is what the algorithms are pushing for, if this is what quote the market wants. But interestingly, in China, it's totally different. So Chinese TikTok, it turns out, is highly educational. Chinese TikTok has a lot of math and science. Chinese TikTok is actually encouraging you to watch videos in which you can learn how to make things, how to do things, how to be more entrepreneurial, how to start businesses. Um, apparently, the Chinese have a, a plan. Uh, it's called the Megzi plan, M-E-G-Z-H-I. And this is a plan for the, you may call it the educational upgrading of the whole population. So obviously focused on young people, but not just young people. And, uh, and it turns out that the Chinese, it's not just that they manipulate the algorithms to drive traffic in China toward education. They pay content creators to create educational content, make it more interesting, make it more, uh, more viral, more, more infectious, make it such that people really want to see it. And so, and uh, there also are time limits. So interestingly, in Chinese TikTok, if you're a user between the age of 14 and 18, you can only use the app for 40 minutes a day. 
and it is there are certain hours that are kind of off limits. The, you can't use the app uh, at that particular age. So what the Chinese are doing here now, I don't deny that they're probably also trying to cultivate in their citizens kind of loyalty to the Chinese government. I recognize that the, that when you have authoritarian and totalitarian governments, the subservience of the citizenry is part of their of their goal. Uh, but I also think that the Chinese realize that this is a competitive world. We're trying to make citizens that are more hardworking, that are smarter, that are more focused on productivity uh, and the uh, material and economic uplift of Chinese society. And we're just going to promote to the best we can the moral degeneracy of the West. So it is this strategy that I'm more concerned about than the Chinese, for example, getting your phone number or getting access to your tax data. Obviously, I think that's bad. And I think we should do what we can to block that and prevent that. And maybe to some degree, if outlawing TikTok is the way to go, we should should consider that. But I think it's interesting here because I think what's going on in China is what is also happening in other societies, societies like India. There's a recognition here that they want these countries do the the moral they want the they want the material benefits of western civilization but they don't want morally to go the path of the west they recognize that down that path is essentially roman style perversion and degeneracy uh, they don't they don't really want all their citizens to end up yet like yol roth the little you know twitter pervert who supposedly now moved out of his home uh because he's been exposed for all the weird stuff that he's been doing um uh, not only on Twitter, but then behind the scenes, behind the scenes at Twitter. The lesson here is that technology is not a good thing or a bad thing by itself. It depends. It depends on how you use it. Obviously, we are living in an age in which you may almost say our power is multiplied enormously, but what we do with that power, what we make of it, how we use it to enrich our lives, that's really the key question here. And I think we should take a cue from Chinese TikTok not to do what they're doing. We don't really want our social media to be a propaganda operation, but at the same time, we do want our kids to grow up to be balanced and mature and well-educated and productive citizens. Guys, I'm really happy to welcome to the podcast a new guest. This is Eric Dieters. Uh, and we're going to talk about a remarkable book uh, that he has called The Butcher of Pakistan. But uh, Eric Dieters is a lawyer, in fact, a famous lawyer. He is sometimes known as the courtroom bulldog. At least that's what he was called by in the press. Um, and he is uh, the founder of Bulldog Media and Bulldog TV. He's also running for governor of Kentucky. I believe that race is coming up in 2023. Um, I had the pleasure, Eric. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, we got a chance to meet. You invited me to speak in the uh, in the Appalachian Hill Country. It was my first time in Pikeville, Kentucky. A really interesting event, um, and um, and I think we're on on the docket for me to do something else with you later this year. So delighted yeah. to make your acquaintance. Thanks for being on the podcast. Um, Talk a little bit, if I may, just to get started about the political environment in which you're uh, running for office. The, the political environment that we have here is probably very much like it is across the country with this exception. 
Uh, President Trump won Kentucky by large margins. So we are a uh, red state. Uh, we have two Republican United States senators, but we have a Democratic governor because Governor Bevin, the prior governor, was defeated because he made everybody mad. It's, it's a personality, to be candid with you. But the environment that we're in in Kentucky mirrors the country in the fact that the Kentucky media and the Cincinnati media market, because we're in northern Kentucky, mirrors all of the woke media across this country. So while Kentuckians are conservative, libertarians, freedom loving, we have to deal with the woke media. And that comes from the Courier Journal out of Louisville. It comes from the Cincinnati media market, the Lexington media market. So we're in that environment that we have to fight. So as a candidate for, as a Republican running for governor, I'm in that, that's where we are. I want to focus on your on your book, um, which I'm in the middle of. Um, but it is a I got to say, it's a mind blowing book. It's on the face of it, not really a book about politics. You're dealing with a medical scandal and you're representing victims of a medical scandal. But as you dive into the book, you realize it's very political. It involves the medical establishment. It involves judges. It involves all kinds of, it's almost a kind of, I don't know if the term deep state is appropriate here, but that's the, the name that jumped to mind. So let's begin by you just, you know, as a lawyer, just let people know what is this book? It's called The Butcher of Pakistan. It's about a guy named Dr. Abu Bakr Durrani. Uh, tell us about him. Dr. Durrani was a Pakistani citizen who was Pakistani trained, came to the United States, and in beginning in 2005 through 2009, operated at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and other Cincinnati area hospitals. And then from 2009 to 2013, operated at what we would say adult surgery hospitals. During that time frame. From 2005 to 2013, Dr. Durrani was performing unnecessary spine surgeries on children and adult for money. And what the, what the book is about is the battle where we show that the hospitals actually knew there were people inside these hospitals complaining like Dr. Charles Melman at Children's Hospital and they complained, but because the corporate healthcare system wanted the money, I mean, it is it, it boggles the mind that they actually allowed Durrani to do unnecessary spine surgeries on children and adults, knowing that for money. And the way he did it, and the ball of yarn got unraveled, uh, Dinesh, is he would lie about the radiology. So he would see a MRI or a CT scan, and he would tell the patient, if you don't have this surgery right away, look at this MRI CT scan, you have severe stenosis, your head's gonna fall off, you're gonna be in a wheelchair, you're gonna be paralyzed. And they listened to him because they don't know what a film shows. But what we uncovered is, once we started getting the radiology films read, read by the radiologist, the radiologist Dinesh would say, mild stenosis. Durrani would tell the patient and the primary care physician of that patient that they had severe stenosis 
and needed emergency surgery. And it is the oldest tale in the book, Dinesh, greed, corporate healthcare greed. We live in a country, Dinesh, and it is a swamp, where corporate healthcare greed runs the show. It's no longer about healthcare. And by the way, we've experienced it with this COVID pandemic. It's the same thing that's happened. Um, it's money, money, money. They create these institutions that require constant money. Well, uh, let's take a pause. When we come back, I mean, it's understandable to me that you'd have a, you know, a corrupt doctor who is trying to boost their practice. What's interesting to me is the way in which the rest of the establishment kind of goes along with him, covers for him. We'll get into all that when we come back. I'm back with uh, Eric Dieters, um, Kentucky gubernatorial candidate, but also lawyer, uh, the so-called courtroom bulldog. Uh, Eric, you're representing, uh, or at least the story you tell in the book covers a thousand victims. We're not talking about eight or 10 people. We're talking about a large number of people. And the question I want to get at is, it's kind of understandable to me why uh, a doctor might be out of line, pull shenanigans, try to make as much money, maybe even misdiagnose people. But what you show in the book and you get into is that the insurance companies uh, also have a role in this. And even the court system where you go uh, looking for justice uh, appears to be on Durrani's side. Uh, that's a little bit harder for people to understand. Why would that be the case? So talk a little bit first about what happened when you took this to court, uh, and then let's try to explore uh, how the system could be corrupted in this deep way. Well, what we did when we started finding about these cases, we took the information to the United States attorney in Cincinnati and they actually indicted him and he fled the country back to Pakistan. However, all of the litigation kept moving forward. But here is what we found. And you're going to relate to this, Dinesh, because you know and what you do and speak about every day, you've got the Democratic Party, you've got uh, media, you got tech. So in this situation, what we found out as we moved forward in the litigation is the largest defense firms in the Cincinnati area in the state of Ohio represented these corporate healthcare systems in the hospitals. In addition to that, these same law firms control the judiciary in the state of Ohio in Hamilton County. Maureen O'Connor, for example, the chief justice of the Ohio Supreme Court. So what we found is, is that you literally are not just fighting uh, the other side, Durrani, but you're fighting the largest law firms, the largest employers. These hospitals are the largest employers. And you can't make this up, Dinesh. This is the first interview by any news media in the Cincinnati area or national. Dinesh D'Souza is the first interview I have had about this story because the tri-state media, their number one advertiser, the hospitals. So this story, as extraordinary as it is, and by the way, in the court system, for the first time in American legal history, Dinesh, they sealed our verdicts and we won $161 million in verdicts and counting. Meanwhile, the largest medical health insurance company in the world, Medical Protective, 
We have a claim going forward against them for fraud. By the way, they're owned by Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, who donated $4 billion last year to charity, but refuses to pay these people the $42 million under the insurance policy. So we have literally, oh, in addition to that, I had to fight the Bar Association in Kentucky and Ohio because they're controlled by the large law firms. And I had to retire both in Kentucky and Ohio. I still manage the law firm, which has my name, but I had to retire because they came after me. That's why I relate to to Trump, Dinesh. I mean, I've been attacked from all sides for the cause of justice. I mean, Eric, I just got to read this uh, line from your book. During this battle, I was suspended, retired, went broke, served time in jail for contempt, fighting for trials, was banned from the courtroom, banned from the courthouse, considered suicide out of spite and frustration, fought two state bar associations, betrayed by friends and family, including my father, my brother, and the Hamilton County prosecutor, had the IRS criminal division sent after me, almost lost my arm, and nearly died from an infection, and yet kept the trust of 580 clients, financed the battle by borrowing and paying back millions, and to this day, I still stand. Well, I mean, Eric, this raises almost a character question. I mean, you are the bulldog, aren't you? I am, and you know, it, it, what you just read makes me emotional because I relive all of that, and all of that is true. I mean, the Kentucky Bar Association sicked the IRS criminal division against me claiming that I was getting, well, I was just getting too much income as a retired lawyer. And when I, I did what all the lawyers tell you not to do. I explained it to the IRS criminal investigators and I haven't heard from them, but I, I've lived all that. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I fought it all, but I refused to quit because I knew they would win. And, and Dinesh, just think about this. this, the relationship I have with these victims. And by the way, of them come from socioeconomic, that's who we took advantage of, Medicare, Medicaid. And um, they've stuck with me through that entire battle. Um, But that makes me emotional, but it's, I did, I I did go through all of that. Let's take a pause. When we come back, I want to talk about the strategies that are used in order to deny people their due. In other words, delays, uh, you know, they're waiting for experts to die. They're waiting for people to go bankrupt so they can continue the litigation. This is terrible stuff. We'll be right back. I'm back with uh, Eric Dieters. So we're talking about his book. It's called The Butcher of Pakistan. This is a book that it reads like a it reads like a fiction thriller, except it's it's a nonfiction book. By the way, the website is butcherofpakistan.com. Uh, you can follow Eric Dieters on his website, Eric Dieters. This is D-E-T-E-R-S dot com. Uh, Eric is also at Twitter at Bull Law. Uh, Eric, let's pick it right up where we left off. I mean, what I find it fascinating is that even though you've won a bunch of verdicts, some of these trials appear to be dragging out for years. And, and, and you say that there are, there are trials going on for 20 more years. And, and I think you suggest that this isn't just a bureaucratic uh, delay. It's part of a strategy to sort of break the spirit of the people who are making these claims, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, Judge Mark Schweikert tried these cases one at a time, and it would have taken 40 years. The current judge, Judge Guy Reese, is now trying cases 
three at a time, which helps. But here's what the whole strategy of these defense lawyers are, medical protective, the hospitals and everything else. Their strategy is, is to drag it out to where we give up. We run out of money, which will never happen. I, I've told these people, I will live in a barn before we stop this fight. But here are some of the things that they do. They appeal, they file motions to reconsider, they delay any type of thing. They say they're not ready for trial. We actually had to wait under Mark Schweikert. He wouldn't sign the judgment entries after our trial victories and delayed it for a year. Then COVID happens. That was a year and a half delay. I mean, they do any, it's the standard thing, delay and deny. And then they suppress the information because the media doesn't cover it. So you're fighting the battle, you know, in a closet. I mean, it, it's, uh, people do not understand and they need to understand that the system in this country, it's not just the criminal justice system. This reflects on the civil justice system. Everybody talks about this amendment and this amendment. What about the seventh amendment? Yeah, I mean, what you seem to have here is a different kind of triangle. In this case, you've got you've got the courts, you've got uh, the insurance companies, and you've got the media, and they all appear to be. I mean, who you would think normally, if you've got a corrupt doctor from Pakistan, he's been doing unnecessary surgeries, and you can demonstrate the point by just looking at the, you know, just looking at the the medical film and going, listen, this is not a guy who was who is in immediate need of surgery, and yet they did it on him, and look at the effect. Um, I mean, this is a. It seems to me we're witnessing, and I'd like you to just uh, comment on the broader point. Are we witnessing a kind of institutional breakdown in this country in which the kind of trust that we have traditionally had, you know, for the FBI as a neutral police force uh, to the media? OK, they have their prejudices. They're going to vote for Republicans or Democrats. But by and large, they're going to try to tell you what's important and what's happening. That the court system, that if you get into court, you're going to get judges and juries that are going to give you a fair shake. Again, they're going to have their own prejudices, but by and large, it's the best you can expect. But I think what you're saying is that that is not the case, that a combination of economic and perhaps even political motives are working together to give us the kind of corruption that we expect only happens in basket case countries. I, I get so angry when I watch the vilification of our police in this country and they make it all of this racial issue of injustice. I can tell you, Dinesh, that the civil justice system in this country is corrupt as can be. My finest hour in this whole litigation was what I did stop this guy from doing further surgeries, thousands of more. Does that get rewarded? No, it gets punished. You can't make this up. We would get complaints from the opposing counsel to the Bar Association. What do they do? They investigate them fully. Every time we file a complaint against their misconduct, which is all the time, they say, well, we have to wait till the litigation is over. It truly is in this country, the, the entire uh, court system, the entire justice system, as exhibited by this case, the FBI and the Justice Department, needs a thorough overhaul. It really does. And it's David versus Goliath every day, not just when a police officer does something wrong. I'm talking about anybody and everybody that walks into the courtroom and wants a trial. Can you imagine the only people, Ohio has this rule. Ohio Supreme Court has a rule. Every case has to be tried within three years. 
These cases are going on 10 years and counting. So the Ohio Supreme Court, led by the corrupt Maureen O'Connor, ignores their own rules. So what do they do? Could they give us more judges? Yes. No, they don't. Could they give us big group trials? Yes. The one judge, Robert Ruhlman, who consolidated all the cases and said, we're going to have three trials, and it would have been over in 2017, Martin O'Connor removed him from the cases. So in other words, if you're a Durrani victim from an unnecessary spine surgery, which is far worse than the Michigan State, Ohio State, uh, the Olympic, okay, there was some improper touchings. These people had unnecessary spine surgeries. All of those state institutions settled quickly, but not in this case. They draw it out. They drag it out. But can you imagine if you're a Durrani victim and they say, no, you don't get your trial for years. Shocking. I mean, this is a, a really riveting book and I can't wait to keep going in it. Uh, the Butcher of Pakistan. It's written by Eric Dieters. And uh, listen, I'm not surprised that the, the local media is kind of trying to avoid this topic because you have riveting detail upon detail upon detail. Eric, thanks very much for coming on to discuss it. The Butcher of Pakistan, check it out. Dinesh, thank you so much. I love all of your work. You're an American hero. Thank you very much. Drawing on my book, What's So Great About Christianity, I'm actually talking about the ways in which Christianity uh, shaped and um, defined the core ideas of Western civilization. And I want to um, begin by focusing on an idea that appears to be sort of a secular idea, namely the idea of distinguishing the roles of the church and the state not necessarily the doctrine of separation of church and state in the way it's understood today, but the notion that the church and the state are separate. They're, they have different functions and they have different allegiances. Now, interestingly, that is a Christian idea. In fact, that is an idea right not only out of the Bible, but it's right out of the mouth of Jesus. Here's Jesus. This is Matthew twenty-two twenty-one: Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God. So here's Christ saying that there are two realms and you have a distinct and separate duties to each one. And, uh, and, and keeping those realms sort of right or in their place is, is what Christianity is, is offering here. Now, to see why this is such a radical idea, you have to kind of go before Christianity to the world of free Christian Greece and Rome. And you got to realize that in pre-Christian Greece and Rome, and by the way, this is, was normal even outside of uh, Greece and Rome, the, uh, by and large, the gods that people worshipped were the gods of the tribe or the gods of the community or the gods of the state. So it made no sense, in, uh, well, actually, it made no sense even in ancient Israel to talk about worshiping other gods. In fact, think about it, worshiping other gods is worshiping false gods. And so for the ancient Greeks and Romans, it was different because they were pagans, they were polytheists, they had multiple gods, but nevertheless, these were the gods of the community, of the polis, of the state, and you had to worship them. There's a Greek writer named Celsus uh, uh, in, uh, who, um, 
who wrote a kind of denunciation of uh, Christianity. This was, by the way, in the in the Roman period. Um, and Celsus basically says that the Christians are atheists. Now, what a weird thing to say. How can how can you accuse Christians who believe in God, one God, a monotheistic God, of being atheist? Well, what Celsus meant by that term atheist is that these are Christians who do not worship the Roman gods. They don't worship the gods of the state. And because of that, they are atheists. They are atheists toward the Roman gods. By the way, the Jews were also considered, in that sense, atheistic. Why? Because their god, Yahweh, was not the god of the, of the, of the Romans. So what I'm getting at here is that Christianity introduces into the West not just a new religion, but kind of a new idea of what religion is, a new conception of religion. Uh, and that con conception of religion has become so universal, so dominant, that today, if you talk about people who reject God, who consider themselves agnostic or atheists, they are agnostic toward the Christian God. That's the only God that they care about, or maybe I should say don't care about. But of course, atheists do care about God. They care about God in the negative sense that they are aggressively hostile uh, toward him. But my point is, they're not hostile toward Baal, and they're not hostile toward uh, Zeus or Athena. Uh, they're hostile toward the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's the God that matters in the modern world. Now, um, monotheism is, of course, not invented by Christianity. Monotheism uh, comes into the world, really. Well, there's some argument about whether ha it has an even older provenance, but we certainly see it with the Jews uh, and, and in the Old Testament. Uh, and um, what Christianity does is it takes this Jewish God of the Old Testament, a God that is depicted as largely tribal. In other words, uh, God has a chosen people, uh, and these are the Israelites. God is on their side. He wants them to be on his side. Uh, and the people who are outside of God's covenant, you might say, don't enjoy the same kind of protection or the same kind of bargain, the same kind of covenant with God that the Israelites do. So this is a, a, a sort of tribal conception of God. Uh, but in Christianity, that tribal conception is changed. Uh, it is universalized. Not that the God is different, because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the Jews worshipped is our God now, today. Uh, but for the Christians, uh, this is not a God only for the Jews. Yes, the Jews are, and to some degree, remain the chosen people. But uh, in a broader sense, this is a God who has come for everyone. And of course, Christ has come to die for the sins of the whole world. So there's a kind of universalization of the Judaic conception of God. But then as you look into Christianity, and I'll pick up on this uh, tomorrow, uh, we see a continuation of the idea of church and state having separate realms. I'll talk uh, tomorrow about Augustine's great work, uh, The uh, City of God, in which Augustine talks about there's a city of God and there's a city of man. And again, picking up on what Christ said, we have, we live separately in these two worlds. Of course, the worlds relate to each other, uh, but nevertheless, we have separate allegiances, we have separate commitments, and in the end, in the final count, the city of man gives way and is ultimately replaced by the city of God. 
Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com.